one and only Fireside Rants Midterm Election Special! I'm Henry DJ Blue Wave. And we're here with our awesome round table of multi-talented ultra progressive guests. Plus Mark. Plus Mark. <laughs> Well, before we uh, begin this podcast, I think I need to extend uh, some courtesy to uh, poor Tucker Carlson's family after he uh, he got ding-dong ditched by some DC activists. <laughs> Fireside to... Rant stands in solidarity with Tucker Carlson. Um, protect Tucker. He's but to, to, but to be fair, good luck, Tuck. But to be fair, there were shenanigans on both sides here. I, I think that we have to look at both sides of this issue before we come yeah. to judgment. There was violence on many sides. Over Carlson's life matters. My name is Mark Palmer. I'm Samantha DeCruz, subbing for Aaron Eldridge this week. And I'm Nick. And a special guest on the show, our resident uh, midterm election expert, because he was here on our prediction podcast, and now he's here for the results podcast, Evan Rowe. So, So the Democrats lost several seats in the Senate. Will they ever be able to regain the majority in 2020? And how will that affect a potential de- I mean, Democrats shouldn't be worried. I mean, Indiana was kind of a shocker. All the polls were saying that Joe Donnelly was going to win. But he lost by, by a pretty good margin. Um, Indiana went right across the board. Uh, Tennessee was supposed to be a little bit more competitive than it was. Missouri, that was, a, I mean, that was, in my opinion, a toss-up. But Senator McCaskill... Was very, I mean, she was unpopular across the board, but still gained. Uh, I think the biggest story, though, going forward, should be talk. We should be talking about uh, Veto and what he did against Ted Cruz. As I recall from when he first announced he was running, I don't think he was even projected to win. I don't even think he was projected to be com- as competitive as it was, and it was ultra competitive. And he gave Ted Cruz a run for his money. Better work and hit and his style of campaign that he ran. It's definitely unique and different compared to other. Senators around the country, how they ran their campaigns. Uh, he was definitely more progressive. Uh, he wasn't afraid of, of saying his ideas. And one day, Texas will be blue. But right now, <laughs> it is not. And that is okay. But Beto O'Rourke still got almost 50% of the vote. So that means that Republicans are voting for a Democrat. The thing that I think is awesome about uh, Beto is that In a lot of ways, I think that he appealed to people in the way that Trump does, speaking his mind, not being afraid of ideas, not trying to appeal to the establishment. If you've, like, watched any of his rallies, they're really enjoyable and they're really fun, and he just acts like a regular guy. And that's what people love about Trump rallies is they're, like, fun, and they, like, shoot T-shirts out of cannons. And, like, in the same way, Beto was, like, this very approachable person who didn't really care about what was going on in the rest of the political world. All he cared about in that moment was Texas and winning that race. And people like that, I think, Democrat or not. I think that Beto is, is just a person. Texas is, is often projected as this big, red, interestingly shaped block that just kind of like lays there in the center of the map. But Texas itself is not that Republican of a state. Hillary Clinton only lost Texas by nine points. That's about the same margin that she lost Ohio. But what Beto represented is a perfect example of completely positive messaging, a perfect example of 
using somewhat of a populist sort of tack, um, using more progressive messaging, and but just really running a race that was just entirely positive and using that to contrast against Donald Trump and against his Republican opponent, Ted Cruz. He, he really knew how to, like, rally his base. Like, he knew how to get the people who, like, felt betrayed by establishment Democrats to vote for him. He was, he was getting people who but, had, like, never voted in why, why did you like him? Like, did you, like... Oh, I liked him because, of course, he's way hotter than uh, Ted Cruz. Oh, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, but, like, but, like, if he was going around and he was saying, you know, Nancy Pelosi sucks, Nancy Pelosi's awful, we need to replace Nancy Pelosi, which he was sort of saying that a little bit, but he didn't... He, it was his messaging. He wasn't going around saying that. You know, I think that the most important moment this election actually came from Beto, and I think that was when he put out that video of him air drumming to The Who as he was going through the Whataburger drive-thru. And I think that's actually a really, really important moment for the Senate race overall, because the Democrats are really framing a lot of these Senate races around humanity, around hope, and they were trying to contrast that with Trump, and they're trying to say that Trump is this candidate of fear, he's this candidate of division, and that was very much the politics that Trump was using in these battleground states. And so Beto was really on the front line of this whole humanity, hope, messaging, and he spent his entire campaign just making himself very human. You know, people were making fun of him skateboarding around a parking lot, you know? But that's something that you would watch that video and you would genuinely look and see a normal person. Here's somebody who's having fun. He's not skateboarding around a parking lot because it's going to win him more votes. He's skateboarding around a parking lot because he wants to do that. And people saw a lot of themselves in him, and people saw something refreshing. So I think people are saying, yeah, he's taking it to the establishment Democrats and stuff like that, but I don't even think he needed to necessarily say that. I think because we saw a real person who didn't see, who was a very polished politician, but didn't come off as one, I think we projected that onto him, that he was this anti-establishment, blah, 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 you know, Democrat. He didn't need to be as honest to think about that as someone like Bernie Sanders who just went up there and said it. I think he just encapsulated it for us, this, this everyman politician. Beto O'Rourke, he air drums, uh, he eats at Whataburger, he skateboards, he's cool. And I was extremely surprised to find out uh, how well he did on election night. He was, I think, within three points of beating Ted Cruz. Now compare that to somebody like uh, Claire McCaskill, someone who's been in uh, the, uh, I think, the senator from Missouri for over 12 years. She got beat by six by a Republican challenger who was actually running a pretty bad campaign. Um, it was one where he lied about uh, supporting pre-existing conditions. It was one where he actually felt angry at him within his own party because he uh, wasn't doing uh, enough of a good job on the campaign trail. But his election paid off, and even though Beto O'Rourke didn't win, the fact that he did so much better, you know, we can talk about a lot of his human qualities. Personally, I think when you stack it up against a repellent lizard uh, human hybrid like Ted Cruz, I mean, obviously, Beto O'Rourke is definitely going to look like the more human candidate. But I think what he stood for, uh, which was for, you know, a bolder vision uh, that focused on rallying Democrats behind progressive policies, is one that I think got a lot of people to turn out for him, got a lot of people excited about his campaign. That's why he had so many, like, small dollar donations, and he didn't really have to rely on any PAC money like some of these other Democrats. 
So stuff like that, I think, you know, definitely improved his campaign. And I think that's what Democrats, you know, need to take going into the future. You know, you can't run these campaigns where you're afraid of your own party. You can't run campaigns where you're, like, lambasting Bernie Sanders and, like, you know, the left-wing radicals in the Democratic Party. You need to focus on the policies that people in your own party want because that's how you get people in your own party to vote for you. And that's why you get near success stories like Beto O'Rourke in red states like Texas. What I think was interesting that you brought up there, well, obviously, is you referred to, you know, Ted Cruz as, you know, mutant alien lizard, which, which you know, he is a real person. But, but that's interesting <laughs> you brought that up, though, because there's a lot of jokes about Ted Cruz. Um, you know, and, and Trump fed into this a little bit by saying that his dad, you know, helped kill JFK, which is just so out of the loony bin. But a lot of people are joking, Ted Cruz, he's just, you know, he, oh, he must be the Zodiac killer, something like that. But these jokes, I think, stem from sort of an indifference people have towards him and just sort of like, they stem from just sort of an uncomfortableness. There's, there's a, a, back in 2016 when he was running for president, there was an election special that Triumph the Comic Insult Dog would do. And one of the skits in it is to try and follow Ted Cruz around on the campaign trail. And Ted Cruz would say the exact same lines at different places. He would get on his bus, go to a place, say the same five rehearsed things about Democrats, get on the bus, say the same five rehearsed things about Democrats again, to the point where if you went to multiple campaign stuff, you'd be able to just repeat everything. And that, that doesn't make a lot of sense because... The problems in one place are very different than the problems in another place, and that's what Beto O'Rourke was trying to show by going to all these counties. And so I think people are really sick of politicians like Cruz, because that just oozes politician. I write this speech, I write these five jokes about Democrats, and I'm just going to say that everywhere, and people feel an indifference towards Cruz. And I think part of the reason why Beto did so well is he contrasted against basically the super non-human-seeming candidate in Ted Cruz, somebody who's so all about politics and so all about ambition and just so swallowed up in that, that he just came off, like, uncomfortably stiff. And it's important, you know, to keep in mind that Beto O'Rourke kind of did really come out of nowhere. He had no major accomplishments in his three terms in the House. And I think that the PAC thing, which was obviously popularized by Bernie Sanders, was also another part of his strategic messaging of being a more human candidate, is that I'm not beholden to corporate interests like that. And it fit with other things. If you look at his campaign signs, they're nonpartisan. You, if you looked at, a, if you were an alien and you looked at a Beto O'Rourke campaign sign, you could not tell whether or not he was a Democrat or a Republican if you were not familiar with the race. It was black and white. Those are not colors that are normally associated with either political party. He was trying to stand out as just an individual person candidate. I don't think we should, you know, dwell too much on Beto's candidacy going into the future. I mean, like, we can certainly certainly take inspiration for it, but I mean, the guy, I don't really know what kind of political future he has. Uh, even within Texas, I think that's, I mean, he could make another run for statewide office, but I think this was his golden opportunity. I think he's just kind of a, I guess a bellwether for the direction that the, the Democratic voters are heading, like the kind of candidate that they want and the kind of candidate that they'll get behind. But I think Beto's just going to spend, you know, the rest of his life in the, Mer uh, in the uh, MSNBC green room. Well, the future, I think, for Democratic Party is bright. Um, I still, I'm still in the school of thought that a Beto or a, a Stacey Abrams or an Andrew Gellum type Democrat will not work everywhere across the country. 
in my opinion. Because if you put them, if you put those same people in, I don't know, New York, I would even say New Jersey, California, of course Massachusetts, I think they would they would have won the race against Republican by a long shot. It would have been <laughs> they would have destroyed whoever the Republican would have been. Um, but I think if you if you put them in, whether it's the Rust Belt. Um, or put them in, in the middle of like Vermont or South Dakota, I don't think that those type of Democrats are going to do well, in my opinion. I still believe that a moderate Democrat needs to be on the ticket. He or she needs to be a moderate Democrat, but speak with a little bit more of a progressive lens, if that makes any sense. I, you just, let me jump in for one second here. Every word you just said there was, you know, figuratively, like, clawing at my heart and just stabbing it repeatedly. I think you almost got that completely opposite. I can see, like, there is an importance, I think, to running Democrat, progressive, ultra-progressive, left-wing populists in places like Indiana, Missouri, Ohio, the Rust Belt states. And then I believe that very much that more moderate candidates like an Andrew Cuomo would be good in suburbia, suburbia areas and more wealthy, higher educated. But when you think about it, the real winner last night that no one talks about who was very probably going to run in 2020 is Sherrod Brown in Ohio, who cleaned up in his Ohio race. And Sherrod Brown is extremely far to the left. He is comfortably in between Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez and Jeff Merkley and all those people when it comes to economic issues. And if you look at, I just I just looked this up, the previous Senate election in 2012, if you look at this, uh, Paul Sadler, uh, who was the previous uh, Democratic nominee running up against Cruz, he lost by 16 points. That is a far off difference from the 3% that Beto had um, a few nights ago. So uh, I don't necessarily know if that 100% we can say that establishment candidates would be better in these places because the evidence we have thus far doesn't really show that we do. I think that in certain places, even like Georgia and different places, a moderate Democrat is fine. You have to find the right candidate that can inspire the right, the, 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 the base right. and that can inspire individuals, uh, individuals to come out and vote. But what, what's drawing people to Trump in areas like Missouri and Indiana and North Dakota, what's drawing people to Trump so strongly is a sense of desperation. You know, you look at like what happened in Pennsylvania is you had places like Erie turn out so overwhelmingly for him that were once Democratic areas just because out of desperation. And they don't buy the politics of, oh, give me a second, I'll work out a bipartisan compromise. That didn't work. That's not sexy, and that's not a solution that they want, and that's why they don't like people like Claire McCaskill and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, like Joe Donnelly, I mean, he tacked hard to the right during his Senate campaign. He uh, said he was in support of the border wall, um, among other things, and in, in, in ads that he ran, like, pro his candidacy on the air, he said, I'm not like those other people in my party, those left-wing radicals. You know, I'm a, I'm a sensible moderate. Uh, who represents Indiana values, and he lost by like seven points. So I think, you know, the test results are in. And I think, you know, it's a mixed bag if you're running. It's not a guarantee that if you're, you know, a moderate Democrat, you're going to do better than if you were running as a progressive. Because I think, you know, people like Joe Donnelly have been operating on this method for so many years of being that blue dog moderate Democrat in these red states. And two nights ago, he got destroyed. 
and it is, it's just not like you need to have a message that's more strongly economically tinged that has anger to it. The difference cannot be the anger that Trump has where he says blame your neighbor, blame so-and-so. The reason why you're not doing well is because of your neighbor. It's because of the people, you know, moving to this country. It's, like it's because of people who are not. Yeah, it's, he's basic scapegoating, you know. You need somebody who's going to go there and say, listen. Your factory left because of the race to the bottom. You know, XYZ happened because of what corporations are doing. This is the important, you know, you need to go there. You need to emphasize the importance of unions. You need to go there. You need to emphasize the importance of education and getting people job training skills. You got to go there and you've got to say, listen, you got to get people out there on those solar farms. Something that no one ever talks about is that in Texas, more people are working in wind energy than in fossil fuels. And they add more jobs to that every single year. And no one ever talks about that. And that's where the future is. You need somebody to go to Ohio and say, putting a border wall isn't going to make your life better. It's not going to get you out of the economic depression that you're in. divided Congress, what should the House do with the newfound majority, both in the short term and in the long term? Get rid of Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> that, and, and I don't mean this in like an anti, like a, ah, you know, that's the little rallying cry of the progressive, get rid of Nancy Pelosi. Oh no, but I mean it like that. But, <laughs> but if you have, right now, with this, with this split, most split of power, you need to use your power to shine a light. You need to use your power to start these investigations. You need to use your power to hold Trump to account, which they can do. But Nancy Pelosi, when she got up there on victory night, made it about you know this bipartisan blah, blah, blah thing, which people don't like. And I really, truly believe that if we follow Nancy Pelosi's way and Nancy Pelosi's sort of opinion of doing things, I think that we won't end up going through with all those investigations. I don't think we'll be able to be as aggressive with Trump as we could be. And I think that we will imperil our House majority. And I also think that she is going to try to play a very fandangled game of keeping things together that we saw under in the last years of John Boehner, which did not work. You saw a House majority in chaos under John Boehner. And I believe that especially with two opposing groups of people who were elected last night. You got progressives elected last night who will not vote for her. You got moderates elected last night who will not vote for her because she's too politically toxic in their district. The only step, logical step forward is to get rid of Pelosi. All right. Well, I mean, there are a lot of ups and downs on election night, but the uh, one of the scariest moments was when uh, Nancy Pelosi 
after having just won the house and what should be like a moment of like strong victory, uh, said the line, now let's hear it for some pre-existing conditions. <laughs> Which, um, to me, really doesn't inspire a lot of confidence about our leadership. But, you know, that whole speaker debacle, that's a topic for another time. Um, I mean, I guess, responding to Henry's claim, I mean, depending on the coalition between the uh, uh, big progressives and then the uh, tiptoeing moderates that just got elected to the House, she might not end up a speaker. But, I mean, now that Democrats have the House, they have a very significant role that they could play in, uh, I guess, resisting Trump's agenda. I mean, now that they have uh, control of the committees, um, the Democratic Congress has the ability to conduct oversight on any issue which they might legislate on. Um, so that means they also have the vast power of subpoena, which is uh, enumerated in the Supreme Court, that gives them a lot of power to investigate things like Trump's tax returns. And then also they can conduct subpoenas on uh, businesses that conduct interstate commerce, and that includes you know, entities like Big Pharma, the Koch brothers, uh, payday lenders, the oil industry. So they could really do a lot with this House majority that doesn't have to do with just passing you know, progressive legislation, because the next two years are going to be uh, filled with gridlock. But I think they have a serious opportunity to actually really start to you know, cave in to the Trump administration, and I think that's going to be inspiring to their voters. I think back to the idea about are they going to focus on establishment Democrat things or, or progressive things. I, I think the issue is we have this sentiment of bipartisanship, and the issue is you're not going to find bipartisanship in this political climate without giving up many of our core values as Democrats. You've heard people say the Republican Party isn't like it used to be, this isn't my Republican Party, the party that I know, and they would be correct because in the last 40 years we've seen a phenomenon which is known in political science as uh, asymmetric polarization. So the Republican Party has moved further right, the Democrat Party has basically stayed where it is. So if we are to try to focus on things like bipartisanship with this House majority, we would be giving up a lot of our core values and pushing ourselves back, pushing ourselves backwards and towards more conservative values. No, I believe that Democrats should actually try to work things out with Republicans. Again, I come from the school of thought that doesn't matter, in my opinion, it does matter who the president is, but I think it, it's even more crucial of who the house, who the house leaders are, and who the house, um, and who who has the house, and I think Democrats should take the step to to attempt to at least try to work with Republicans, and if it does not work out, then tr try passing things that are progressive, that are more progressive than usual. Well, this is such a crucial time. We have two years until the next time we get a chance like this. We've been working on bipartisanship throughout the entirety of Trump's administration and it hasn't worked out for us. We've been locked and Republicans have just been passing, you know, everything without any consideration for okay. what Democrats are doing. Why should we be taking this road of trying to appease them when we've got a bit of control now? Sun Tzu once said, there is no instance of a country having benefited from prolonged warfare. And I don't say that just to have say, quote, it makes a lot of sense because dealing with Republicans, doing bipartisanship things, that is the actions, in my opinion, of a majority party. We are not a majority party. We are a party which has been effectively gerrymandered out of most majorities everywhere. We are a party that got 
13 million more votes in the Senate than still lost the Senate. We don't have the power to go to Republicans and start making compromises right now. I don't think that is possible at this moment, especially when they are the party of just one man when, and he has such a strong control over the party. I think that you need to use this majority to just keep jabbing away with investigations and lay out some facts for people so in 2020 bigger gains can be made and then we can reevaluate where we want to go on from a legislative standpoint. Doesn't that just create more division? Because we could look at numbers and look at presidents who have been under investigation and obviously the last the last president that was under serious investigation excluding Donald Trump was uh, Bill Clinton and look at his popularity numbers at the time obviously different climate different things were going on in, in the 90s but his pop his popularity was, was soaring after what happened with with uh, Monica Lewinsky so to a certain degree investigations do need to happen and they will happen but at the same time Democrats need to look in the mirror and actually needs to needs to take care of issues that that Democratic voters and that that that's at, that, that Demo Democratic voters care about and that issues that are attacking America. Um, we still have a lot of things that are on the table that needs to be fixed. For example, the opioid epidemic is still on and it's still it's still here and it's 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 a problem and there's still a lot of problems across America that needs to be fixed and it, the Democrats take it day by day and this attack different issues that are happening in America. Well, I, I think you're right. Democrats do need to do something. They need to attack these issues, but I don't understand why that inherently has to be, okay, let's approach this from a bipartisan standpoint. Let's compromise. The time that it takes to compromise over those things, the time that it takes to try to appeal to this party that has moved so far right from where they used to be, until we reach a compromise on that, we're not going to get things done in the democratic way. We're not going to get things done in a way that voters have voted in this time around. They want a change. They don't want us to be keeping it as it is with the Republicans. Plus, uh, at the same time, uh, you look at what happened in the House. The Democrats took back the House. Their voters are expecting them to do the things that they voted for, which is not to work with the Republicans and try to hash out common sense solutions. I think the reason people voted for Democrats this year is because they're angry at Trump, and they're angry at what the Republicans are doing in Congress, and they don't want you know the Democrats to come together and you know work for things like you know corporate tax cuts or uh, you know more defense spending. What the voters who voted for Democrats this year are looking for is for congre the congressional leadership to stand up to him, his administration, and the Republicans. And you know I just think that saying you know that we need a bipartisan marketplace of ideas. I mean, first off, I don't even know what that means. Like, does that mean that, you know, we have to have a marketplace of ideas between, you know, people who want a Medicare buy-in, like the Democrats, and then people who rely on, like, diamond and silk to get them the votes of black voters, like Republicans? I mean, if Democrats want to go down that road of saying that we need to be the bipartisan comp party, they're gonna, their voters are going to lose a lot of faith. And they're not going to come back and vote for them in 2020 if they don't fulfill their promises. I disagree with that. I disagree with that. Because the Republicans did the same thing to Obama. And, and once once the Republicans took back the House, what was that, 2010? Yes. Yep. And 2014 when they kept the House. I didn't like the way Republicans handled that. And I do not want Democrats to go down the same route. My esteemed colleague who is 
literally sitting on my right. Um, I, I do think that, I, and I really do want to say this louder for the people in the back. When you have a midterm season, when you have something like that, you are elected with a mandate. In 2010, Republicans were elected with a mandate to stop what people perceived as this out-of-control government overreach with Obamacare. They were elected with a mandate to end that. Democrats were elected with a mandate to say no to Trump, to this sort of fear and divisiveness that he was doing, and his policy proposals were reflecting that. The things he was doing through policy were reflecting that. The border wall is an encapsulation of that. So policy very much plays into this, and it's very much a no with that. And that said, what do we even get by being bipartisan? Because if you look at what happened to um, Claire McCatskill and Joe, uh, Joe Donnelly and uh, John Tester, who uh, Trump campaigned hard against all of them, really hard, even after they worked with Trump on yeah. easing regulations on small, middle-sized banks, which, and they championed that for Trump, and Trump stabbed them in the back. So you don't really get anything tangible in a political field by being bipartisan. Something that Republicans do right is that they promise their voter base something and they attempt to do it. They promise to try to get rid of Obamacare, and they have. Trump promised the wall. He signed an executive order for the wall. But establishment Democrats have fallen into this trap of trying to appeal to the right instead of their own base. Instead of working to rally who they have behind them and unite people of color and women and laborers and immigrants, they instead have taken money from corporations and hope to maintain a base of middle-class white Americans who are swayed by the same corporate-centric policies as Republican politicians. They're trying to be Republican light, and it's not working out for them. Because when they do that, they can't fulfill the promises they're making on the campaign trail. Instead of doing that, they need to do exactly like Henry said, fulfill the promises they make. They need to put forth innovative and groundbreaking initiatives to actually win over voters instead of depending on the complacent to vote with them blue every time. I think a good note um, before we move on is there's a lot of positive things we took out of this election. Uh, obviously, uh, blue... <laughs> Blue wave, we took the house back, but um, a lot of great things uh, came in the house. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was the youngest woman elected to Congress. Uh, she's also a DSA member, which is pretty cool. We have the first Somali-American elected to Congress, uh, first black congresswoman from Massachusetts, two of the first Congress uh, Muslim congresswomen um, in there, and that's that's really awesome. It's awesome that we are seeing so much more diversity in a country that's supposed to be a melting pot. I really felt bad about that one. How so? Our <laughs> ideas are just horrible. What What's horrible about them? Okay, so tell me how you're going to get the money to do all the ideas she wants to do. She can't even explain all her ideas. Uh, if someone asks her about anything she wants to do, uh, uh, just looking around for answers. Don't have the answers. But with, oh. with respect mm. to Samantha, was, you didn't really give her kind of a... A question she can answer. You said you just said she's stupid. Yeah. She, wait, she, she asked her why she's stupid. She said all, all of her ideas. Explain all of her ideas. How can she yeah. possibly explain an entire person's platform if you can pick out a specific idea that you believe is unrealistic and is therefore stupid, and then ask Samantha to defend that? Then you can have a conversation about whether or not her proposals are stupid. <laughs> but if the you moderator. use these extreme generalizations <laughs> like that, you're not going to go anywhere. Cortez is a waste, a waste of energy. Why though? You yeah, can't you have say to explain why. why. All these ads, I'm not, I'm not buying that. She's all these crazy. personal attacks. Look, all right, I just looked it up. Things that she's running for: Medicare for all, 
overwhelmingly cheaper. cheaper. There's so much evidence to prove that. Fully funded public schools and universities. This is not an idea that's foreign. Bernie Sanders has run on the same idea. Universal jobs guarantee. Uh, I don't 100% know what that means, but it looks like she is running um, on the idea of dollar minimum wage. Uh, housing as a human right, fixing our housing problem. There are more houses in this country than there are uh, homeless people. Justice system reform, she's backed that up by discussing things like legalizing marijuana at the federal level, releasing individuals sentenced for nonviolent drug crimes, ending cash bail, and automatic independent investigations when people are killed by law enforcement officers. Immigration reform, she wants to abolish ICE. Climate change. I, I don't. I don't. One hundred percent see what's wrong about any of her ideas here, and I don't see where she hasn't backed these up. For the record, a, a universal job guarantee is an economic policy under which the government would create full employment but and price stability by having the state promise to hire unemployed workers as an employer of last resort. So if you exhaust all your options trying to get a job in the private industries, the private market and you just can't get one, maybe you're at an awkward age or maybe you have a disability, the government has a safety net for you to get a job, which would help to control inflation and also create full employment. Also, that would have an effect of taking the emphasis off of so-called entitlement programs. So and that's not, that's not a foreign idea either. Other countries do that as well, whether it be with you know cleaning up garbage on the side of the street or something else. These are not radical ideas. I, I, I don't understand. What she well, you know, said here, yeah, that's you're wrong. you're listing all these great, you know, uh, policies that uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez supports, but uh, um, I think you know, let's say after listing all those policies, I mean, can you compromise with Republicans on any of those? But but, but in in in, in Mark's no. defense, you could, you could <laughs> yeah. make an argument like Nick just probably expl- just explained federal jobs guarantee quite well. You can make an argument that she has been you know, pretty vague about some of these things. And when someone throws around the word like federal jobs guarantee, it's very hard if you don't kind of immediately come in there with a very, you know, good synthesis like Nick just did. And if you put out into this perception to the world that it's just some sort of like crazy program, because a word like, like a phrase like that can go any which way in somebody's mind. So you can make an argument that Perhaps Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has not been specific enough with her proposals or um, explain them in a very clear manner to people. And that, that could definitely be something that Mark is picking up on. Hey. Okay, so when we talk about governors, we're talking about voting. Almost seven states have flipped from a Republican to Democrat, with only one, namely Alaska, flipping from independent to Republican. The governor is mostly responsible for redrawing districting maps and budgets and funding and all that boring, booky kind of stuff that nobody really follows or understands. So, how should the Democrats use their newfound clout in these states? Um, obviously, uh, if state legislatures will allow them, because state legislatures hold a great deal um, of power over the governors, um, 
at least in some of the key races in the South, uh, I think that what they need to do is they need to um, focus a great deal on a lot of the voting mechanisms that are in place. Um, a lot of places are disgustingly gerrymandered, um, especially in southern regions. That needs to be fixed. A lot of places have a lot of uh, voter suppression as far as voter ID laws, difficulty in getting people to the polls, long wait times, um, polls not staying home late enough. I think that making sure that we are having high voter turnouts and not allowing the state to actively disenfranchise the voters uh, should be the primary concern, especially for these uh, Democratic governors, if they want to be able to keep their seats and ensure that more seats can be won in 2020. I just want to let people know, like a lot of people curious of what's the significance of governors aside from obviously gerrymanders and that. Governors set the tone. They set the legislative tone for their states. And I think that's something very important to remember here and why I think this is very crucial when we come to states like Wisconsin and Illinois and things like that. I think it's even more crucial when we're looking at some of the scary races that are going on as far as uh, the governorship. For example, the uh, Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp race. It scares me that Brian Kemp could be governor considering everything that he already did to disenfranchise the voters. There's no telling what he would do if he was governor as far as redistricting, as far as uh, polling places, as far as purging people from the votes. And it's it's terrifying. The number of voters purged from Georgia's voter rolls, well, Brian Kemp was Secretary of State were 1.5 million, and his current margin of victory over Stacey Abrams is only 60,000. So how can they fight that? The ones that, you know, Democrats are in charge of, they, like I said, need to focus on passing legislation to ensure that polling areas are running properly, to reduce wait times, to redistrict things. But the problem we have is, in my home state, North Carolina, we have a Democratic governor. So we are expecting great change. We are expecting that there weren't going to be the same issues with gerrymandering. But a state legislature that was strongly red prevented him from doing anything. So what they need to do is try to work with the state legislature to fix these things because it shouldn't be a partisan issue, but obviously it is. But with their newfound place as governor, that should be like their number one priority. Whether or not it will happen, we'll have to see, but it'll be interesting to watch. And I think, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the Georgia race, and Brian Kemp right now stands a very good shot at becoming governor. I mean, the race might fall into a runoff if there's enough provisional ballots to throw it to Stacey Abrams, but I mean, that's a pretty bleak future because that's a guy that, you know, won basically based off of voter suppression and um, making sure that, you know, black voters couldn't actually vote in the state of Georgia. Uh, and that's going to have significant effects because it shows that that test case actually works. And I mean, in like Wisconsin, for example, now that Scott Walker's been defeated, I mean, that's great and all, but the uh, Wisconsin Assembly Speaker just announced his intention that he's going to strip the governor of most of his powers so that most of that, you know, uh, power gets directed to the Republican-controlled legislature. And, like, things like that, I think Democrats need to be scared of because that's just going to prevent them from, like, you know, exercising power, further distance ourselves from, you know, that, you know, progressive future we all dream of because the Republicans, you know, 
realize that you know there's a bunch of people out there who a bunch of young people too that want to vote for Democrats and uh, you know and people who are opposed to the Republican agenda so they're making sure they pull the levers to make sure that those people don't vote and uh, making sure that they can stay in power and keep control for as long as possible well I think it's very I think obviously he was doing some very shady things with that but I think it's very hard to although that's probably what happened because there's no definitive facts that he that you know Brian Kemp went out there and said like I'm not gonna let African Americans vote in the state and when he did things that led up to that but it's hard to just I think frame it at this point he, that he, he shouldn't I, I, yeah I just feel like it's, it's a claim my point my point is like I feel like that's a claim that shouldn't really be made as a fact. I think it should be made as something that's, that, that pretty much happened. All right. Uh, let's, let's examine the facts then. Yeah. Brian Kemp was Secretary of State. He purged voters. He was in charge of running an election that he was running in. Precincts were woefully prepared for Election Day. Uh, hundreds of people were leaving because ballot stations weren't working, certain areas weren't being supplied power cords, and he was in charge of all of that. And of course, you could say, oh, it was an accident, there's no way we can fully know that it was his fault. But combined with all the actions, I think it's pretty blatantly obvious that what happened here, you know, proven fact or not. Uh, and, and fortunately, the NAACP did take emergency action in these areas and forced the state to allow polling stations to remain open later, but... Think of the hundreds of voters that were seemingly purposefully disenfranchised and denied and who couldn't come back later, who couldn't stand in line all day. It's obviously disproportionately targeting low-income citizens, people with families to take care of, people who have other duties besides voting, and there's similar things happening in other states. And, and it's, just, it's insane to me that it's allowed to happen. But I think we're getting too far off from, from really what... A governor does versus well, their secretaries of state are in charge of elections. Brian Kemp could appoint a loyalist, whatever, somebody like that, but he as governor would have no more power over the state's elections. Well, that depends branch. because then what happens if a Republican, you know, wins the secretary of state election in Georgia? I mean, that might go to a runoff because the Democrat but it, did it, well it, there, but I'm just like, I'm saying because, I mean, the reason that they do this in these elections is because they want to retain power for as long as they can. Well, the, but then, then we get to conspiracy that if a Republican wins, that he's going to share with Brian Kemp the details of voter suppression tactics. I, I just mean, that's feel not like an un un unrealistic expectation. No, 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 but, no, but it's, not unreal, but it, it's not a fact either. I just think we should be very, very careful about assuming that just because two members, that just because Brian Kemp's an awful person, I, I think so, but like just because another Republican will probably win Secretary of State, that, 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 that Brian Kemp will somehow flagrantly violate all of these ethical rules and also exercise authority over the state's elections. I mean, he already without, has. And, no, but he hasn't been governor yet. He hasn't done that yet. There's no proof of that. You can't... I think it's very careful that we can't start making claims like that because mm -hmm. then it hurts our claims for what he's already done. I just don't think we should expect him not to. So I, I don't think that we should go into it optimistically and yeah. think, oh, maybe he won't do that. Maybe we don't have to watch out. Maybe we don't need to, you know, be careful and ensure this doesn't happen. We, we do. We've seen what has been allowed to happen. We've seen what has happened, and we need to ensure that it cannot happen again.
Yeah. And that, I mean, that's going to be, like, a, a daunting task going forward because, I mean, like, you know, in Florida, now that DeSantis, barring re recount aside, looks like he might win the election there, now he gets to appoint three new justices to the uh, Florida Supreme Court um, that a judge held uh, would wait to be appointed until after the election. People expected Gillen to win, and that was seen as good news. Now DeSantis is in charge of picking those judges, and they're going to make crucial decisions on things like gerrymandering, which Florida has a long history of doing. And Democrats, I think, are just going to get beaten back again and again. So, you know, I understand, you know, we can't, you know, just, you know, make those, like, you know, assertions. But I think we should expect them to happen because, I mean, it's like, I just, like, Republicans know the game. Like, they know exactly what happens when more people turn out to vote, or at least when more people that turn out against them. And they're preparing, you know, they're they're. It's just, it's exhausting because we know that, you know, Brian Kemp is deliberately rigged his own election. And we know now that, like, Republicans in Wisconsin are going to try everything they can to stop the Democratic governor from, you know, exercising his powers. Um, and, you know, there needs to be a significant uh, solution to voter suppression, a national solution. If the Democrats ever come back from power, that just simply needs to be addressed. And that could include things like, you know, instituting, you know, election days, like a national holiday, making voting by mail national. And those fixes are desperately needed because otherwise uh, Republicans are going to use to the, uh, the fullest uh, extent their powers in order to stay in power. I believe that inherently that voting and voting, handling voting, um, yes, there should be oversight from the Department of Homeland Security. But at the end of the day, I believe that's, that's strictly a state's, a state's issue, in my opinion. Uh, let states figure it out. And if, the fed, if, the, if they need help from the federal government, uh, the federal government should step in if needed. Uh, yeah, if whoever the president is, they could, whoever the president is, whatever administration it is, Republican, Democrat, Green Party, Independent, whoever it is, could step in and help uh, that, that particular state. Uh, what's going on in Georgia and Florida? I mean, I mean to be honest with you, um, the track record with Florida, like, I, I, I think going in, I kind of expected this. Like, Florida is known for some wacky, wacky stuff with their elections, um, whether it was in 2000 when Bush and Gore, or whether it's yeah. them voting for them voting for Obama twice, uh, or then voting for Trump. Like, it's just, the state is a true swing state, and it's, it's always going to be wacky. I think that that state will be wacky for the rest of our life. Um, Georgia... Stacey Abrams will will potentially lose that race. Going that to the to the voting point, um, there could be arguments and could be assertions made that yes, he rigged the election. Um, but I think with things like this and like everything else, I think when it comes down to that particular process, and if we're gonna we're gonna make assumptions that that actually happened and that that's gonna be confirmed on the books, I personally believe that it needs to be oversight and investigation. Whether that comes from internally, internally from the state, or it comes from an outside resource, obviously uh, the the DOJ, um, Justice Department. So, I think that uh, when we're looking at voting rights and we're looking at different things that has happened in the day, that needs to be directed back to Congress and looking at the Voting Rights Act of 1965, right? Um, because that got gutted recently with, in the Shelby v. Uh, Shelby v. Holder case. Um, under the Obama administration. Can I say one off thing about Stacey Abrams? I, I, although I completely agree with her decision not to concede, mm -hmm. 
I think it's bad for democracy if people don't concede. She'll probably concede after the recount happens. I think she'll have to. Yeah, I mean, I mean, she'll, she'll have to, but like... Conceding now would be like giving up, and if it does go, you know, to later stages, she's still trying to keep people hoping. It's not at a recount stage yet. Like, it's getting closer, but there's still the thing that... There's still the problem is she's claiming a number of ballots that haven't been counted, and the state is claiming a different number of ballots that have been counted. And the number that the state is claiming, even if they all voted for her, it still wouldn't be within a margin of a recount. The number that she's claiming, it would. And then if there was a recount, and then the recount law, then it would go to a runoff. So, like, there's just so many cavalites before, it, you know, she gets to this point. Caveats? Caveats. There's so many, there's so, excuse me, there's so many caveats before she gets to this point. And I think it's just, at this point, I think it's very, very, very unrealistic that she would ever have a chance. You should have conceded on election night, just like how Andrew Gillen conceded, and now is sort of just saying, we'll, we'll, let, we'll let it roll we'll let, let let back a little bit. <laughs> if, if, if they found those ballots that she's claiming, she could have rolled it back. But I told people, no side is, no matter who wins, they're not gonna concede. And that's just, just nasty politics in a very racially divisive state, in a state where people are very, very divided, very strictly, and it just does not, it's not good. At all. It's not good for a country, it's not good for democracy, it's not good for the rule of law when people don't concede. Well, you know what? I, I have to slightly disagree with you on that. I don't think she should play the, uh, the Roy Moore game and just never concede her race. Um, kind of like what he did after uh, he lost to Doug Jones. And then file a lawsuit and then... But I, I appreciate her, you know, for playing, you know, this long game and waiting, you know, for uh, the recount, the potential for a runoff. She can't just, you know, you know, act like this is just a normal race because some crap went down in this election, and I think the Republicans stole it. And I'm not even saying that as, like, a, a radical thing to say, and I'm not even saying that as just, like, a, you know, just a crazy, you know, expectation. I'm saying that that's, like, I mean, that that's what kicking those, you know, um, black voters off, you know, the voter registration, um, you know, databases, that's what that means. They're doing that because they want them to lose. So going down to south to Florida, you know, it's like, uh, I mean, I understand why Gillum's conceded the race, uh, obviously, because I really, even with the uh, ballots that are coming in, I don't think he has a shot at winning. Voter suppression does extend down there because until Election Day, um, before Amendment 4 was passed, you know, I think felons, nonviolent felons, did not have the right to vote after they were released in the state of Florida. That's the other thing. Like, Florida's a blue state for now on. No, I wouldn't even say that. 1.5 They might not even turn out. That's like, just... I'm just like, we, we can't just say, you know, that you know it'll just be a blue state well, from now on. Well, just by pure mathematics, you have one... Think of it. No. One, one out of every three African-American males in Florida has been incarcerated at some point in their lifetime. A lot of those people fell under the people who got their right to restore back. African-American males tend to vote for Democrats in either the low 90s or the high 80s. You have, so you would have the vast majority of these people being African-American males who would get their right to vote again, assuming half of them register, quarter of those that register turn out and vote, you're still looking at numbers about 200,000, blah, blah, blah. All these races are decided by less than 40,000 votes. You'd okay. be flipped. You'd flip Florida blue. I mean, I'm, I'm just now like, you know, 
yeah, I understand that. It definitely makes it easier for a Democrat to win in Florida. Finally, we shouldn't just expect them to automatically turn out for every election now. And then secondly, we just also have to realize that, you know, the Republicans, again, are going to try and pull out all, you know, the, you know, tactics in their book to try and get them to stop voting. Because, like, I mean, it's happening. You can't deny it. I mean, I think we have to just wait until everything plays out um, and see what happens once the state of Florida allows uh, people who are formerly incarcerated to actually register to vote and see what new laws come up, pop up in their state senate um, and see what wacky laws they try to put up and whether or not they get passed. We just have to wait. It's a, at this point, it's a waiting game. And I don't know when the new laws of the state of Florida kicks into effect, whether that's after the election or January 1st, I do not know. But definitely it's a waiting game and you have to wait and see um, to see what new laws pop up. I think that the races for governor across the country are uh, some of the most telling races as far as our democracy. Um, we can see the way that people are willing to flip based on policy. Um, but more than that, we can see the issues that our democracy has as a whole. Uh, we can see um, issues as far as gerrymandering, as far as voter suppression, and all of these factors come together to provide a disgustingly toxic state of affairs for our democracy, and in the future, we can only hope that these races will be a lesson for voters and for legislators to fix our democracy. My name is Henry Pratt. My name is Samantha DeCruz. Mark Hall. And Evan Morrell. And also Nick. This is Ben. Your weekly dose of common sense. Post-election edition. With Fireside Rants. Uh, also Will Truett by Felicia. <laughs>